Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you so much that you've sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. As we go through your word today, would you please bless this time? Please allow our hearts to be enlightened to your word as as Paul says that you would give us a spirit of revelation and knowledge into the Holy One. God, would this be a time that you use to strengthen and equip your children and if need, rebuke and convict them that the spirit that you have given them would stir them through your word. It would stir us through your word to live a life according to your word. And, and Father, I know that because you are sovereignly bringing people into this church that there are those that either think they believe or those that just are adamantly against it. And I would ask that you would soften their hearts to this glorious news. That you would use this time to speak life into their hearts that you would take the heart of stone out of them and replace it with a heart of flesh. Bring fruit today to this. Anoint me and protect me from straying away from the passage. I pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we will be in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. If you need a copy of God's word, uh, one of our ushers can bring it to you. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Kind of a big chunk today, but I think we'll do good in getting through it. I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to talk about it. Starting in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing to God and fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judah. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In the passage today that we see, we're seeing kind of a double prophecy take place. We're seeing the fulfillment of a prophecy and then an establishment of a prophecy. That is, we are seeing John the Baptist born, which is what the angel Gabriel had come and came and, and told Zechariah. And then we see Zechariah prophesy over his son and what is about to come. See, what's amazing about this passage is it is rich with God's mercy towards his people. We're going to see how God's mercy brings joy. We're going to see how God's mercy brings worship. And ultimately, we're going to see how God's mercy brings salvation. There is a man named Louis Zamperini. You may be familiar with him because there was first a book written about his life and then a movie titled Unbroken. Louis served in World War II. And during his time serving, he ended up becoming a prisoner of war in a Japanese prisoner camp. Louis would be the target of torture from those that were in the prison camp, but also the guy who headed it. He would be his main focus. He was actually named the, the crow is what his nickname was. And so during his time there, he would experience some of the most excruciating pain he would say in his life. And fast forward a little bit now, the war is over, he's in California, and he goes to a crusade put on by Billy Graham. Well, at this crusade, Louis, being full of anger, actually gets up halfway through it and starts to walk out, but Billy Graham calls him out and tells him to sit back down. And at the end, 
Louis Zamberini actually gives his life to Jesus and becomes a Christian. A little while later, he starts to feel this inward change and he actually wants to go back where he was tortured and forgive those that tortured him. And so he hopped on a plane and flew to forgive those who had beaten him to a pulp. See, Louis wanted to extend mercy and forgiveness to these people, and he was able to do so all but to one, the crow. See, for whatever reason, he did not want to meet with Louis. See, I think that it was probably out of guilt and shame. But because Louis had experienced God's mercy, he he now had found a profound sense of, of joy, a profound sense of worship. God's mercy brought salvation to him. However, like the man who rejected the invitation from Louis, I think we all can relate in some type of way that it is not natural for us to want to receive mercy right away. We either look at mercy, especially God's mercy, and we do one or two things. Either, well, well, three things. We either accept it, but most of the time right away we'll deny it. I I don't need mercy. I haven't done anything wrong. Or we condemn. I know I need your mercy, but... I just don't deserve it. But what we see in this passage this morning, what we see in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, is that God's mercy brings joy, worship, and salvation. And so we come to verses 57 and 58, which say, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. God's mercy brings joy. God's mercy allows us to rejoice with others. We were told that Zechariah and Elizabeth were advanced in years early on in the chapter. That it was just physically impossible at this point in their lives to have children. However, we fast forward nine months and what the angel Gabriel had actually spoken to Zechariah and Elizabeth were now coming true. They were having a child and the big day arrives. Elizabeth has the child. She goes into labor, has the child. She has her son and it says that her relatives hear how the Lord has shown them great mercy. No longer would Elizabeth, as she said, would people look at her with disgrace, but that the Lord has now blessed her. 
And it's through the great mercy that God showed them. It then says that her neighbors and relatives rejoiced with her. Do we rejoice with those who God has shown his mercy and blessings to? The, the clearest illustration as I was sitting down and preparing for this sermon was, was an illustration of when you put a bunch of kids in a room and you only give one of those kids a present. And then what came to my mind was actually my, my two nieces as we've gotten to see them grow a little bit more during a birthday party, what normally happens is as one of our nieces sees her presents and then starts to open them, the other one starts to kind of creep a little more close, a little more close. Her head goes up a little bit, starts looking to see if there's any for her, realizes very quickly that none of those presents are for her. And what happens? Sadness, jealousy, envy comes into her heart. See, as we get older, we just get better at concealing our sin. That's an external, <laughs> that is an, an external expression of what us as adults can internally feel. We get better at hiding our covetousness, our jealousy. It becomes so easy for us to just put on a smile and, and chuckle and say, yeah, good for you. <laughs> it is a battle. But yet this passage shows us that God's mercy leads to joy. It, it leads to being able to rejoice with others. So maybe you're thinking then, well then how so is it with me? I have to imagine I'm not the only one that also feels that way that my, my nieces feel. How is it then that I can come alongside with my brother or sister and rejoice with them. We, we are told by Paul in Galatians that it's actually one joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So if you have the Spirit of God indwelling in you, then we can approach God's mercy joyfully. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Because we have been given the Spirit of God, we now can come to God's merciful acts of blessings towards others, not in a covetous, jealousy way, but rejoicing with them. So I, I no longer look at the car, the house, the job, the well-behaved children, or, or maybe the fishing boat, 
with jealousy. But I come alongside my brother or sister rejoicing how God has been merciful and how he has blessed them. Elizabeth and Zechariah, their neighbors and relatives were able to rejoice with them because of this merciful act that God had shown them. And so what we see next is this response, this fantastic response. God's mercy brings worship in verses 59 through 64. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessings to God. So we see this transition happening of of people rejoicing. Now, on on the eighth day, which is customary for a Jewish family to circumcise their their, uh, male child and then to name him, we see that their relatives are either those types of relatives that are just nosy and and want to be in their business or they're just trying to be helpful, but but it actually says they were about to call him Zechariah. They they weren't even going to ask Elizabeth and John or Elizabeth and Zechariah they assumed that it would just be Zechariah. And it wasn't normally custom to name a child after the father, but it wasn't abnormal. They probably most likely thought they were just helping. Zechariah is well advanced in years, and this will allow him for his name to live on. So, of course, they would call him Zechariah. But what do we see in this passage? Elizabeth says no. (laughs) No. His name will be John. However, what we do see is them then turn their attention to Zechariah. Zechariah, well, well, you're, you're the head of the household. What's his name going to be? In, in fact, it doesn't even say that they, that they spoke. It says that they made signs which leads many commentators to believe that not only was Zechariah mute, but that he was also deaf, which would have only exemplified or or made this even more extreme as Zechariah couldn't even hear that Elizabeth had said his name will be John. So then we come and he asks for a writing tablet. He probably signs for a writing tablet. And what does he write down? None other than the same name that Elizabeth had said. His name is John. And what the next thing that Zechariah, what happens is God's mercy is extended to Zechariah. He opens up his mouth and the very first thing that comes out of Zechariah's mouth is it says immediately he blessed God. 
Immediately he worshiped God. Can you imagine with me going back to the temple when the angel Gabriel had shut Zechariah's mouth? How he was, he was mute and most likely deaf? How there was complete and utter silence now for the next nine months of him just thinking, what happens if I would have just listened to this angel? Can you imagine the emotional suffering and toil seeing his wife having to go through the different stages of pregnancy, being well advanced in her years and not being able to talk to her? This constant reminder of how he disobeyed God and did not listen to him. But what we see is Zechariah's obedience right here. We see that when Zechariah is obedient, the angel, well, not the angel, but Zechariah's mouth is loosened up. He is able to speak. And what is the first thing that he does? He, he doesn't tell his wife how beautiful she is or how beautiful the baby is or how much I love you or the encounter with the angel. What he does right away is he worships God. After nine months of going through probably the hardest trial of Zechariah's life. He worships God in his commentary on Luke, Tabidi Anabule, don't say that fast, makes a great point by saying this. Suffering makes us bitter or better. Suffering makes us bitter or better, and we see in Zechariah's life that it clearly made him better. During this time, he must have learned more about God than he ever had in his life, end quote. Does this not reflect what Paul says to the Romans? In Romans 5, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It is the same for us, brothers and sisters. When we suffer, we either get bitter, we get bitter towards God, we get bitter towards the church, or God uses it to reveal himself, and he shows us how much he loves us and makes us better. This causes us to worship him like Zechariah did. But how is this so? Which is why we need to ask the why question. Why does God's mercy bring us joy and worship? Well, 
verses 67 through 79 show us. God's mercy ultimately brings us salvation. We see in verses 67 through 73, it says this, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited Blessed be the Lord our God Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the name of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. So we see again Zechariah being filled with the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned last week, which means that a proclamation or a pronouncement is about to take place. And then we see Zechariah reference two covenants. The covenant that God had made with David and the covenant God had made with Abraham. The the Davidic covenant, which would have been known as the, the covenant of the Messiah's welcome. That this Messiah would save God's people from their enemies and show mercy that was promised towards them by defeating his enemies. And then the covenant with Abraham is mentioned that God would remember his oath to Abraham. Remember that oath, the one where God walked through the animals that were cut in half, saying, if I don't fulfill my promise to my people, then cut me in half, then make me a liar. Here, Zechariah is prophesying over that, reminding the people that are in this scene of that promise. This is an incredible proclamation. This is truly an incredible proclamation because Zechariah is acknowledging the plan of God first. He doesn't go right away into blessing his son, but instead the spirit leads him to remind himself and all of those that are are around him, remember what I am going to do for my people. And what's truly incredible is that this is happening right before their eyes. This is all unfolding right before their very eyes. And what Zechariah is doing is proclaiming the gospel here. He is reminding the people there that the Lord is going to bring salvation. That there is a Messiah who will defeat his enemy and that he will rescue his people from that enemy. And so we need to ask the question, well, who is the enemy? Well, sin is the enemy. Sin has caused separation between God and man. However, if we look at Ephesians 2, we see more clearly that actually we're the enemies of God because sin indwells in us. And God plans to eradicate that and save his people from that by setting his wrath and judgment on that. 
You see, the Jewish people thought that Jesus was going to be a social liberator, that he would bring back the power that Israel once, might, once was by being this king that would rule over and conquer all of these nations through a very worldly type of way. But instead, we know because we have the rest of the book that Jesus is a liberator of sin and death. Jesus came to conquer sin and death so that we would no longer be the object of God's wrath, but instead the object of his prized possession, his sons and daughters, his holy people, co-heirs to the kingdom. And he did this by living a perfect life, dying a death for you and I, rising three days later ascending to the Father's right hand so that all who believe in him can have everlasting life. This is what Zechariah is reminding the people around him. This is why every single Sunday I look for this and preach on this because we, whether, it's, whether I'm in a room full of believers, a room full of non-believers, or a room that's split, every single person in the world daily needs to be reminded of this good news. So Zechariah starts this pronouncement with God's promise to save his people. And then what he does is in verses 74 and 75 is he turns his, he turns his attention to salvation's outcome by saying that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. When God saves his people, they are to now serve him without fear because what do they have to fear? Not only are they to serve him, but they are to serve him in holiness and righteousness. But something must happen before this great salvation takes place. And then in in the next two verses, we see that there must be a preparer for salvation. Verses 76 and 77 say this, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah turns his attention then specifically to his eight-day-old baby. And for whatever reason, she's fit to to tell him as he's just laying there, you, child, are going to go before the Lord and you are going to prepare the way. You are going to prepare the hearts of these people, John. You are going to be the prophet of the Most High. This was John's mission. John's life mission was to prepare. He was to prepare his way. How? 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. If John had a life quote or a life verse, it would have been less of me, more of him. I must decrease so he can increase. John's whole life, his whole mission was just to get out of the way so that God could be seen as the most precious prized possession amongst anything. And how is it that he did that? By giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Which then brings us to the last part of Zechariah's song here. Verses 78 and 79 say, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Salvation's light will arise. And brothers and sisters, it has come. John's mission is to usher in the sun, S-O-N, rise. To prepare the way for him. To give hope to those who are in darkness, who are in the valley of death, and to guide their feet into peace. Are, Are you living in darkness? Are you in the shadow of death? Let the sun guide your feet into the way of peace. And this only happens when you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and turn to Him. So I plead with you trust in Jesus to be your guide, to bring light. Trust in him. And so we come to the end of this passage. We see, we actually get an evidence of salvation's effect. In verses 65 and 66, if we go back, and fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judah. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord is with him? Fear came on people. As we read earlier during the response, the fear of the Lord, that's what brings wisdom. They feared, fear came on them, and they went back and they told their neighbors. When Louis Zamorini became a Christian, he made it his life's work to share about this light, to bring in the sunrise to people's hearts. He took up the mantle that John the Baptist displayed. 
and told people about this wonderful news to prepare their hearts. See, God is the one who ultimately brings uh, fruits and increase, but we must bring the seeds. We must plant and water them. And so this is what Louis Zamorini did. So much so that he was willing to go back and face the people that beat him. Wasn't, he wasn't looking for attention because he was tortured or because of this great story that he has. He was doing this because, like John, Louis wanted to decrease so that Jesus could increase. Can we say the same, church? Can we say the same? That it is our desire and mission to decrease so that Jesus in people's lives and in our lives can increase so much that people just can't help but say there is something incredibly different. You're just totally different. Because God's mercy ultimately is shown to us through salvation, we should make it our life mission together to make Jesus and this great salvation known everywhere. God brings mercy to Zechariah and Elizabeth by giving them a child. God's mercy is shown that through his mercy, we can rejoice. God's mercy is shown that he loosened up Zechariah's lips. And through God's mercy, we see that we should worship. And then this great truth that we see that God's mercy brings salvation. And because of that, this is why we are joyful in worship. This is why we don't have to be fearful anymore. Oh, brothers and sisters, it is a great truth when we are constantly in a state of just remembering these promises. Even through the most difficult times, even just meditating on one or two of these promises can bring hope in the midst of darkness. And so let Zechariah and Elizabeth be a great example to us of how God's mercy brings joy, worship, and salvation. Let's pray. Father, would you, please, would you please water the seeds that have been planted today? Would you use your word? Would you use Zechariah and Elizabeth's life as an example that because you have extended mercy to us, we can be joyful and rejoice with others, that we can worship you and that you bring salvation? Father, thank you for this great passage. Use this passage to make yourself so incredibly known. And like John, let this be a church who decreases so your son Jesus can increase. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. It is him that we praise, him that we worship, salvation that he brings. Amen.